0: I think there is using art forms that are already established and working and the process of establishing new art forms. So for me, when an anthropologist wants to use ciphers or uh, some form of music, I don't see that as an appropriation of art. When they push, you know, the, the existing medium, then really that for me becomes art. So, for me, it's, it's really about intention.
1: Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. In this dialogue, we look at the relationship between ethnography and art practices research. The dialogue was prompted by the recent workshop on African ethnographies, which is organized by the Department of Anthropology at the University of the Western Cape as part of the African Critical Inquiry Program. The workshop was intended to raise questions about ethnography across its contemporary forms and its publics. In this dialogue, three colleagues who attended the workshop will be discussing the relationship between ethnographies and artistic research. Professor Brett Piper, The principal investigator on the Arts Research Africa project and head of the Wits School of Arts will be in discussion with Dr. Nasifu Mgunzulu, lecturer in Wits Anthropology, and Dr. George Mahashi, who's also a lecturer in the same department.
2: So Nusipo and George, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. George has already participated in our series of dialogues in the Arts Research Africa Project. It's really lovely that it's a trialogue, if I can call it that today. So, I mean, the initial kickoff point is that exactly a month ago now, actually, the three of us happened to have attended a, a workshop in Cape Town at UWC under the rubric of African ethnographies. And some of the discussions that took place there, I was very interested in because it foregrounded the question again of what's the place of artistic practice in relation to anthropology and the social sciences and the broader humanities today. We might like to speak about counter-anthropologies, but I don't want to run ahead of the conversation. And our project in the Arts Research Africa project is to, to be thinking through the disciplinary and the methodological and the broader questions about how we relate to the rest of the humanities and the project of the Decolonial University, if I can use those very charged phrases. So, today's conversation, I thought we can riff off anything that surfaced for us in that previous workshop we attended, but we don't need to limit ourselves to that conversation. And when I was thinking about ways of starting this conversation, I thought I should also open with my own disclaimer, and that is the kind of interests and investments that have led me to this conversation about touch points or intersections between the arts and anthropology. So my disciplinary training was in music, and one of the topics that actually wasn't discussed much at the, at the workshop at UWC was the ways in which ethnography has traveled to other disciplines And locations in the university. And the field in which I ended up kind of reluctantly, which might become a theme, doing a PhD is called, elsewhere in the world, ethnomusicology, which really in many ways marks a moment in the mid 20th century when musicology or formal music studies adopted ethnography as a canonical uh, method. And then the notion of musical ethnography has, in a sense, been a hand-me-down from anthropology in the field of, of ethnomusicology. And since the 1980s, at the very least, the critical turn and the reflexive turn in anthropology has its own equivalences in the field of music studies to the point, and I've just given it away, some people are de- very deliberately not using the term ethnomusicology, and I myself have a, a glancing relationship with it. I have a, It appears on my PhD certificate, But in many ways, I feel that the work I do is a critical reflection on and in some sense against the colonial inheritances that come with that term. So asking this question from a place at Wits is actually quite interesting because Wits is one of the few places where there's a long history of the study of African musics initially actually in the music department at Witz from the 1930s onwards in the work of a, of a scholar who came from Scotland called Percival Kirby who drew on disciplinary formations and knowledges outside of music studies in that work. But it's only the greater part of a half a century later that social anthropologists at Witz in the department in which you now both teach and, and are based where popular musics and urban musics became a major topic of reflection and tellingly outside of music departments who came to that sort of work quite late in the process. So there's an interesting dialogue that one could have about how at Wits specifically different forms of musical practice have been canonised in music studies and in anthropology and often the one has been a supplement to the other which is just interesting for me coming into this conversation. So I thought that's my disclaimer or my set of interests going into the conversation. I'd love to just ask you, and uh, it it can be more condensed or longer than than I have, just, you know, I mean, for you in your own work or teaching or research or current interests, where do the touch points lie for you between the work you do under the disciplinary address of anthropology And what is now referred to as practice, or perhaps you use the word art, or perhaps you pertinently don't use the word art. I'd be interested. Now, Sipo, can we start with you?
3: I I was interested in your reference to that book that you brought, because it reminded me of my own experiences in Grahamstown, where I was trained, I think. I was trained in anthropology, and just a few buildings down was ILAM, and a lot of ethnomusicology was taking place and ethnographic objects and all kinds of ethnomusicology was taking place. But throughout my training, not one single course, not any conversation that happened in the building just down the, the road. So I, I do think there is some of that going on, I think, around the country, not just here at WITS, that the ethnomusicologists and the anthropologists are in their disciplinary silos. Just something that you reminded me of. In my own practice, as an anthropologist and as a scholar, I work with youth. So the youth are just infinitely creative. (laughs) And so there's a lot of writing and ethnography that I've done around how young people express themselves. So often through music. So I've engage with young people, participating in hip-hop subcultures, my work in Mauritius, so writing about Sege and Sega, And it's interesting because the way that I come to it is definitely as someone who is not at all trained in the arts. I don't know what that means. Also, <laughs> maybe we can talk about how that in itself creates this barrier of like there are technical experts who understand the arts and then there are those who are just lay folk who happen upon music, who happen upon visual arts and such. And so when I was attending Cyphers or when I was attending Sega performances, I was definitely there kind of asking participants about like, how do you feel about dancing? What do you think about this music? What is the history of your involvement in this? And not necessarily being curious about the form in and of itself. The form was just a way for me to kind of ask other questions about social life and identification practices and all those kinds of things and so it is interesting to ask where that place of expert understanding and knowledge and familiarity I guess with a particular art form should I be able to understand that this music is incorporating elements x and y and etc or is it sufficient to write as an ethnographer simply about what it evoked in me To go to a performance and to ask my participants about their own histories of engagement with that practice but not necessarily the art itself being the object of analysis and comes at a good time to have this conversation because i am actually working on a music paper and i haven't actually at all engaged (laughs) with the art itself other than the lyrics of the songs i don't really yeah i don't find myself to be an expert in in that particular art form and i do think there is a a reluctance to kind of step into that because disciplinary knowledge i guess to be like okay i am an anthropologist and they are artists so i will let them do the art and i will just do the ethnography i guess it, it is a sense of kind of guarding my my disciplinary space because in in the same way that like art practices are being adopted by different disciplines. You know, you now have people doing STEM plays to go and explain, you know, things in sciences the same way that ethnography proliferates. And I I get touched when I hear a political scientist saying that they were doing ethnography and then they actually had a series of surveys. And I'm just like, no, this is not what we do. I don't know, disciplinary protection can be useful sometimes, especially when you're training students in a particular form, you want them to understand it as much as possible. But then it does create this kind of barrier where you kind of then feel, oh, I am here in the art space, but am I really in the art space or am I just observing? And I think that's kind of a very old school approach to doing ethnography, to kind of read culture from above.
2: Thank you so much. So George, how is how is art or art practice intersected with your work as an anthropologist? And would you identify under any of those disciplinary addresses?
0: Ooh, identification. I don't know. I I wouldn't want to identify, but at the same time it's a space that I operate in. So for me, I do not start as an artist. I mean, I'm currently in anthropology and currently being accused of being an anthropologist and slowly accepting it. But I don't come into the space as an anthropologist. I don't come into the space as an artist because in reality, I'm a trained photographer. And a photographer is a very specific thing to an artist. And, you know, that's a whole debate that can be had. But how I find myself in this space, I find myself because um, at some point I got tired of being a photographer and I decided to practice a little bit of art. And in my attempt to practice a little bit of art, I got accused of being an anthropologist So, in a way, for me, how I find myself operating in this space was in a process of trying to understand why am I being accused of X, Y, Z? Obviously, I was being accused because of the history of photography within the context of anthropology and also eventually understanding that anthropology and photography have quite a long history. So for me, how I end up as an anthropologist or or being a person in the anthropology department is is a matter of accident. I don't really have any training per se. I have worked on an anthropologist archive, which mainly included uh, photographs. But to what do I do now in the department, I like to think that I'm there as a sort of gap filler in a sense that anthropology hasn't done what uh, we might call things related to the arts or this particular school hasn't done things related to art in this particular way or more specifically archives. The department hasn't done this kind of work for about 20 years or so so I come in as an artist or as a person that has been in the arts who's seen as sensitive to the questions that are being posed to anthropology, but an anthropology that hasn't had to deal with questions of anthropology and art in a very long time. So case in point, I am working in the Museum of Anthropology, which was technically disbanded in 1980. You know, so basically I am helping anthropology remember its past so that's how i find myself there and to the question of what i do there is i try to think about practice because for me it's no longer about art It is about practice. And what's interesting about anthropology for me is anthropology has always been good at practicing, which sometimes gets forgotten that anthropology is a practice. So for me, that's how I relate to the space. So I don't teach the student curatorial work. I don't teach the students art. But I try to get them to think more about practicing in relation to art and anthropology historically.
2: So what interests me about both of your responses is that they, they, in some sense, take up what I spoke about initially as, as, as to how ways of knowing travel across disciplinary boundaries. And of course, that travel happens in all directions. And it really does sound as if we've come to a new moment, and this is probably cyclical, when other disciplines are rediscovering art as a resource. Now, one of the conversations that came up quite a lot at the workshop at UWC we all attended a month ago had to do with how, as much as 30 years ago, the critical and reflexive term within anthropology. We seem to be in a similar moment now, or the discipline does internationally, and that the arts seem to have a renewed salience in that process. So there are special journal editions on art and anthropology. There's several monographs. There's now a Center for Experimental Ethnography at Penn, and one of the speakers at the conference came from there. And there's a sense in which the arts are being looked to to help finish the unfinished work of decolonizing Anthropology, which is kind of interesting to me because I think that the arts have a lot to learn from anthropology in having had to face up to those questions. One of our colleagues from UWC, Siraj Rasul, pointed out that what might be distinctive about anthropology in South Africa is the ways in which it had to face the presence of a liberation movement in the classroom in the 1980s, and arguably we're in a similar moment now certainly in the post forlist kind of era in South Africa. And for me, that pertains as much to arts departments as anthropology departments or any other academic discipline. Now, George, the example of the anthropology museum at Wits is a really interesting and telling one, I think, because if I understand correctly, the collection of ethnographic objects that was housed there until very recently has now been moved to the Wits Art Museum, and you're in the process of reimagining and curating that space possibly pertinently with not reference to objects. So I think the ways in which the arts and anthropology might be co-complicit in some of the ways in which the colonial subject was constructed, the ways in which colonial knowledge was understood. And to quote one of the other keynote speakers at the UWC workshop, Kaushik Sundarajan, the ways in which ethnography remains a knowledge practice based on what he calls the epistemic objectification of the native informant, which for him is at the heart of colonial reason and resonates in my own reflections because it's often at the heart of artistic appropriation and the kinds of so-called borrowings that have influenced many versions of nationalist art musics, and popular musics and, and so on. So, I have a sense that the arts and anthropology share a conundrum in trying to relate their ongoing practice to histories of this epistemic objectification of the native informant. Is, is that something that resonates with, with either of you in your teaching, in your research, in, in what it means to be practicing anthropology at WITS now?
0: So before I answer that, I think it would be interesting to also think about the arts, right, that anthropology is an art. So for me, there's the question of conflating or not conflating, but the idea of art and idea of fine art or artistic practice. So to, to be speaking about the arts is much easier because at the end of the day, anthropology is, you know, Art and in itself does what uh, it, it brings a question of what is art, right? So that's just something to park for later. But I think for me, these questions cannot really be a question in a sense that as as a as as a person who's not necessarily coming to anthropology for what it historically used to do, I find the very idea of informants uh, kind of problematic because number one, I don't have informants so you know i i do a lot of anthropology but i don't operate on the basis of informants so it, it's not a question that i i think about uh, very often and i'm more interested in the practice of of an anthropology that doesn't hide behind the informant
3: hiding there's so many <laughs> coded words <laughs> It's interesting because when you started earlier, you were like, you were accused of being an anthropologist. And then you called me an artist. You're like, anthropologist and an artist. And I was so, like, complimented. And I was like, yes, I am an artist, actually. Thank you for recognizing my art. And I think it's interesting to think about why is it a slur to call someone an anthropologist or to do anthropology. And yet it seems more and more compliments to call someone an artist and to even call anthropology an art. And it speaks to this strange erasure of the colonial project touched each and every discipline. There was no one who was left unscathed from medicine to mathematics to arts to anthropology to sociology to history in and of itself. And whenever I'm at, you know, bries and things and people ask learned friends, what do you do? And I say I do anthropology. They're like, Oh my gosh, because anthropology is this big slur. It's just you anthropologize. And I'm just like, fair, I get it. And also our discipline is really good at spending a lot of time in reflecting and excavating our own histories, old and recent. So it's something that I don't even find as an insult when people kind of go... You're anthropologizing. Because I'm just like we're we're constantly remaking and reshaping how this discipline works and what its relationship is to not informants, participants, other human beings. And the researcher is always implicated in that. So for me it's like to ask ethnographic questions or to ask anthropological questions is just part and parcel of my practice, which necessarily has to be different from Malinowski. There's nothing I can do to be anywhere near, you know, Evans Pritchard. Like I am not, I was not designed to this discipline, right? I was always positioned as a subject of anthropology. And so for me to even do this work is necessarily different, is necessarily to undo the design of the discipline. And so some of these questions, I kind of think these are preoccupations for white people. Because they they make white people uncomfortable, and it's it's true, <laughs> you know. There are preoccupations for people who have historically been in positions of being the translator of the native's culture, and you know, from Mafeje to Makubane, we've had a long tradition of black ethnographers who've spoken back and critiqued and rewritten. The anthropology of the continent from the continent and not just about the continent, right? And so for me, the history of our discipline allows me a lot of kind of like freedom to be able to continue in reworking, asking these critical questions about what it is that we do when we say that we do this thing. But I, I I think it's interesting that I definitely was complimented when you called me an artist.
0: I don't know, but I mean, there's also the idea that, uh, I mean, for me, coming into anthropology now, the question is, is everybody using anthropology as a scapegoat? In a sense that actually anthropology doesn't necessarily have to deal with any of these questions, but everybody else who needs to deal with it deposits, you know, like let's say the medical school or any other discipline deposits their guilt to the anthropologist almost says, no, we've got an in-house you know, person that will carry the guilt on our behalf. So anthropology has to keep doing this reflexivity thing that is completely... I mean, it doesn't say that there are no problematic anthropologists, they're yeah. still around. Uh, but I, th- I think one has to recognize that for those anthropologists that are problematic, the anthropologists that are not problematic, <laughs> if there's such a thing, should not have to carry that burden and should be allowed to do what they do. So for me, it becomes a question of schools. So for me, when I think about anthropology, I think about schools. I don't think of anthropology as a discipline. I'm particularly interested in the 1930s school who were very interested in doing a particular thing, and it was a cohort that made decisions together. For me, what would be interesting will be what will our school do That will define anthropology, but I don't see it as a discipline that's handed down. Sure, it can be handed down through succession and what, what. But for me, it's a question of schools. And and it's always for me a question of what is this school going to do?
3: I hear you when you're talking about schools, but there's something quite interesting when you think about, let me speak for myself. All of my lecturers were trained by the same people. So there's a particular school of people who were educated in the 60s and 70s who then became the people who trained my generation of ethnographers. But it wasn't necessarily the formation of a particular school, I don't think. So I think there's something quite deliberate about a particular project like the Rhodes-Livingston folk. You know, they had a particular agenda and a particular project to do very particular kinds of work. But... It's complicated to come up with a comprehensive, singular project, and we want to name it decolonial. We want to all name ourselves as people who are practicing a decolonial ethnography, who are working in multiple modalities. But I don't know if we are yet there, if we have formed a cohort of any shape or size, because I think we're still trying to walk on these strange eggshells where on one level we're apologizing for the discipline and we are the scapegoats, I guess, for everyone's accusations of colonialism, which, listen, are true. It's like, it's not like people are making these things up. These things happened and are true. But also at the same time, there's this assumption that because we're into this moment where the university is being asked to engage in decolonial practices, that we're all decolonized now. I mean, there was this moment in the workshop that I wanted us to follow up on, and this question between post-colonial and decolonial. And I think we... Very often in our higher education institutions and in our particular disciplines don't quite know where to place the emphasis and how our own practices speak Sometimes to maybe just a particular postcolonial moment that this is just a mark in time, but it doesn't actually mark a decolonial moment at all. And I mean, it's hard, you know. We, we, it's a crisis of time. So often we we kind of moving forward and making these leaps, and it's like, wow, look at you guys working with podcasts and multimedia and dance, you know. I went to a conference last year where people were asked to to dance like their research, which is very odd. It's interesting, but it was odd. And it's like, what? I'm not a dancer, and neither are you, and we should not be doing this. And people are being really avant garde, and I'm like. What are you doing that is actually making a decisive change or break from what we've historically done? Or are you just simply kind of just dancing your way through some really problematic appropriations? Like, <laughs> what, what, what is it that we're actually still up to? And I, and I think it's okay to say that it's still too soon to tell, at least for me. And my practice, I think it's too soon to tell. And I'm also seeing my students who are being trained, who I'm training as future ethnographers, that we're, we're still finding our feet and we're still wrestling with some of these ghosts. But I also think these ghosts rest heavy for certain scholars than others. And it's okay. Some scholars do need to carry that burden much heavier than other scholars because they do carry... Yeah, historical privilege and all kinds of other burdens that they need to excavate, but to not kind of put that haunting on future generations who have yet to even kind of enter the arena.
2: So what I think is really interesting about what both of you have said is that the question of disciplinarity emerges with respect to anthropology and with respect to any other field of study. And I think it's quite interesting in the South African Academy that some of the disciplinary lines are less clearly drawn than are usually assumed to be the case in the global north. And again, if I can just cite the examples we started from. So, you know, in common parlance, we speak about Kirby and Hugh Tracy as ethnomusicologists. But I would argue sometimes that that's both an anachronism and a category mistake. If you actually go and look at their intellectual formations, some of them, were certainly none of them were trained in the discipline that was called ethnomusicology, which only emerged in the early 1950s. Secondly, they often borrowed techniques of folkloristic collection or material culture collection from other disciplines or even outside academia in the likes of the the folklore movement in Europe. So actually, when we look back at our own disciplinary histories, one finds them quite undisciplined and... For me, there are affordances in that, particularly at a moment in which the whole knowledge project is under so much scrutiny again as to what kinds of knowledge are pertinent for the students who we are working with now. And the idea that the recourse to artistic practice, be it dance or poetry or whatever else students want to use, should in some sense be ring-fenced in a school of arts is something I would want to mitigate against. Although I do hear the counter-argument that you're making to say that there's a degree of charlatanism at its worst that could come with that. And you're asking the question of then, you know, so why? Why the reach towards the arts now? And does it actually merely recuperate and sustain older patterns? Or is it actually opening up new opportunities for a different kind of understanding? Now, I understand that recently in your department here at WITS that there are now guidelines for students who incorporate artistic research into their work. Is that correct? And has there been a process of actually trying to systematize, for example, how someone who's working on an honors or a master's or a PhD in anthropology at WITS would be assessed for incorporating the likes of dance into their work. Because it's a conversation that we find ourselves having from the School of Arts, speaking into a university administrative system for, for example, the submission of proposals and assessments, where we often feel that we are talking into a template that was designed for the social sciences. So there's a sense that we're reaching towards each other but maybe not in this sort of conscious conversation?
1: Oof, that...
2: (laughs) I mean, for me, I haven't encountered
0: it yet in a sense that as a person whose education is mostly in the arts, coming to anthropology where I understand my role as sort of facilitating that particular type of, of interest, but I have not yet seen it. But it's also because my idea of what this might look like reflects more what the School of Fine Art wants. So, for example, for me, I I made a, a statement that got me into trouble and cost me two weeks of corrections where I had distinguished between African Studies film essay and an Artistic or not artistic, but a a, a fine art or contemporary art installation film essay, which got the examiner ruffled up. Because for me, I don't think it's the same thing. I mean, I've just examined an MA thesis that had a, a film as a big component, which speaks to what you're you're talking about. But at the beginning of marking that film, I had to remember the distinction between what I called an African studies, what I terribly called an African studies film essay and an artistic film essay. And for me, the difference is about are you using the medium? Or are you transforming the medium? Obviously, using the medium automatically translates into transformation because whatever you do, if it's good, art will appropriate it naturally. But for me, what would make something artistic would be to deliberately want Change, You know, however deliberate one can be when it comes to art. So for, for me, it, it becomes a question of, is the social sciences interested in transforming the output and, and all of these things? Or is the social sciences interested in just simply not being confined to a narrow understanding of a text? which I think for me, definitely that's what's happening in the department. There's an interest in not being confined to a narrow idea of what a text is, i.e. a written text that tells you uh, something instead of a written text that uh, expresses or does other things. So for me, there's a definite interest in the department to think more critically about what other texts, which I think is an old anthropology question there, that uh, writing culture debate addressed, and, you know, it will continue to address. So for me, I think there is a definite interest in a wider idea of text in the social sciences. But being there, I realized that, yes, it's definitely not an interest in a more complex text text that the art school might be interested in. And even for me, it's constricting, and I would find it constricting for my students. That's one way of answering it.
3: The short answer is, no, I haven't also come across a template of of engaging with that. But what you're saying, George, is kind of making me think, it's making me think about the changing ways that we make sense of what is knowledge and who's a creator, and whether it's artistic works or uh, people, uh, participants that we meet and we have conversations with and they tell us about their lives and philosophize and wax lyrical and interpret the world. And then we go to the third space and then we interpret their interpretations of the world. And there's this tension that I find with students and in my own practice, but I see it more clearly in students' own work, where there's this desire to kind of almost inhabit your participants' world and their life. And so everything they say is great and verbatim and then produced as like, this is knowledge. And on the one hand, they're correct, right? They have gone to speak to Fruit Seller X and they want to know about everyday fruit selling in Johannesburg. And what they say about fruit selling is what goes. Fantastic. But it becomes a little trickier when your student is working with the manager at ESCOMM and is now taking someone with considerable authority and power and taking their work that manages perspective verbatim as the truth, with a capital T. And then you're sitting there going, okay, what is our role in interpreting, analyzing, and making critiques of what our participants are saying and doing? And it's a difficult tension to to walk. And usually the rule of thumb is, you know, we are... Advocating for our participants We are on their side We want to understand their perspective as much as possible And believe them as much as possible However, power So you need to think about the power Relationships between you and a manager Versus you and a fruit seller Versus you and a peer, right? And how you represent Those different perspectives Needs to be cognizant of the power dynamics Between you and these individuals And there are I would argue, grave implications for just taking powerful people's perspectives at face value and not critiquing them. And there are also grave pitfalls of taking people who are less powerful than you and kind of taking their worlds and splitting them apart and deconstructing it because you know better, really, what their reality ought to be and how they mean to make sense of it. And so you walk this line of who's got the authority to to make knowledge and then interpret that knowledge that they've made. And I think it's a similar thing that I've seen that happens in how we relate to the arts, in at least my experience as an ethnographer, is that I can kind of sit and listen to a Sega song critiquing the government and have, you know, Oh that was a nice experience that was interesting but also hmm that particular interpretation of the political dynamics might not quite be and you know I've got all my extra research and data to put to bear to the song and I yeah deconstruct it to the point where the song no longer sits in in of itself as a form of knowledge but now I have infused it with all of my interpretations and therefore now it's legible to the academy and it's legible to I don't know people who read academic journals. I guess, and so the question then becomes: when we say that people are producing art as ethnographers, on what basis do we judge that? Right. So you're kind of saying there's this this distinction that can be made between like what is it an art form and an African what
0: what did you call it? <laughs> um, I I, th- I think there is using art forms that are already established and working and the process of establishing new art forms. So for me, when an anthropologist wants to use ciphers or uh, some form of music, I don't see that as an appropriation of art. When they push, you know, the, the existing medium, then really that for me becomes art. So for me, it's, it's really about intention But for us to then get caught up in are the social scientists trying to become artists debate is not useful, just as the question of are artists trying to become anthropologists is is, is not useful. Their established medium, just as anthropology itself is an art, when an artist decides to use the art of ethnography, that in itself is still part of being in the humanity. So for me, I think the, the distinctions are a little bit not so useful. Mm. So I think it becomes a question, or rather we should take it back to that question of transdisciplinarity, which I think for me, anthropology represents. The ability to transcend disciplines and invent new discipline. Because if I take it to how I... Become, or rather how I give anthropology a chance. When you do your history of anthropology, you realize, oh, okay, at some point there used to be old white men could be black old white man who's sitting on a chair nice padded chair sitting there who gets an envelope from a missionary with lots of photographs lots of recordings of of sound and then reads them looks at them analyzes them and do all of that things and then that man becomes a person that actually goes into the field so has to get dirty and then takes with them an army of art artists or art practitioners, the sound recording guy, the photographer, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to the guy that becomes the photographer, the music person, you know, technically knows how to do it, becomes the person that is actually a musician or a photographer. So for me, anthropology only became interesting when I started seeing a progression from this man sitting on a couch couch, you know, disemboweling other people's work to this guy that's actually producer. So for me, I think that's an interesting conversation around anthropology, its relationship to to art and why we are all clamoring yeah. for each other. For me, I think there's a desire to go back to that space where we can transcend disciplines. I don't think there's a desire to colonize another person's discipline.
3: Let's I think that's the. They, I
0: mean, that's what it would be. That's what it would be. But I think there's a desire to move, and anthropology and art have been very good at doing this moving beyond. Um, I think for me, that's. Yeah.
2: So as we start winding down our time, I think that's a really rich place to try and just focus a few final reflections. So. At the workshop at UWC, one of the places where I think this meeting of art and anthropology that seemed generative to me was about the expressed desire, and our former colleague Kelly Gillespie spoke to this, about the relationship of anthropology to the practices and worlds that it writes about, not being simply a descriptive one, but one that aims to counter or to reimagine or to fabulate. And it seems to me that the salience of artistic practice in that project, I could hear the salience of artistic is at its best if it is about producing new ways of knowing and not simply a mutually utilitarian use of you know, artists using anthropology in a utilitarian way or anthropologists using art in a utilitarian way, but whether something in the process changes them and how they know. Do you have any final reflections on where you might like to take that in your own work and the affordances perhaps of the promise of of new ways of knowing at those touch points
3: <laughs> I don't know that's it's a lot to think about i'm i'm not I'm not sure yet, but the one thought I think that is swirling around my head right now is this idea of the native informant because the word informant came up and now I've got like this idea of like anthropology's relationship to colonial power and to oppressive systems as I've said is is a rightful critique to have of the discipline and similarly anthropology's attempt to rectify that by being on the side of the marginalized and speaking for sometimes, and giving voice to, which is really problematic. That whole idea, but and the apologists reconfiguring our position to power and where it is that we want to locate our voices and our practice, I guess. And I think a huge part of that has to be. It's it's strange because I mean our bodies, right, are the instrument of our research. So we we go there. You have to, you physically have to be there, right, and you do the work of ethnography and communing with other people and you might fabulate how intimate (laughs) you are with the particular community in order to you know give yourself some authority or whatever but I do think there's something really interesting about one's body being the instrument of research and how deeply intimate that change that happens to you as you get to know another person and how those relationships necessarily have to be represented in a way that is Thick and complex and rich to do justice to whatever human being you're engaging with, whether they're powerful or less powerful, and that intimacy and those relationships. I think that's really where that the art of our discipline is and the practice of our discipline really is 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 fascinating. And you know, hopefully, if we're honest about what is produced in us and what we produce in that process that makes for really good ethnography. I think what makes for bad ethnography is when we we start to kind of take shortcuts and lie about, you know, how, how close we got, how much we know and um, how much we can generalize from particular experiences. That's that's when we start getting shoddy and start kind of speaking on behalf of or constructing projects, cultural projects for people that are not necessarily true to their lived experience. And so that's kind of my
0: final thought. Mm-hmm. And I mean, drawing from that, I think for us to reimagine the idea of the client of anthropology, because mm-hmm. for me, I think we've been stuck with the idea of the anthropologist's client being the state, because those are the archives that, you know, tell of the anthropologist's escapades. But if we go back to understanding that when the anthropologist is in the field, everybody they encounter is a client. So if we go back to that space of understanding that our anthropologist client base has always been much wider than the state anthropology has a chance of recognizing how it continues to harbor other clients so that we don't need to imagine and fabricate the work that we do for the marginalized. Mm. I mean, it's not the question you asked, but I think jumping off from that, there, there's a project of coming to terms with who anthropology's clients are. Mm -hmm. have been historically and now so that we don't always assume anthropologists have always had uh, the state as its only client. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about community work. I'm not talking about pro bono work. But from the one anthropologist that I have studied in depth, I got a sense that her clientele was much wider, and when we get accused of things, people don't understand that there's a lot of work that anthropology did that makes the current state unsustainable. So I think as a final, I want to put it sort of, yeah, there. But I think you need to tell us, because you've been facilitating (laughs) a conversation. We'd be curious what... You know, what your stake is, how do you see, you know, your relationship with anthropology, especially being based in the arts, kind of speaks back or how you see these.
2: So again, to answer your question, George, one of my provocations for this conversation is that historically, in the field of popular music studies, and particularly jazz studies, in which I've worked most, it's actually been social anthropology at WITS that has held that disciplinary base. And the music department that's often had to catch up or supplement that. And my sense is that an ongoing dialogue of this nature could be really rich for us in the School of Arts. And the political, epistemological, methodological, pedagogical and other questions that anthropologists wrestle with, given that scapegoated status that George referred to, I think think the arts have a lot to face up to as well. So I hope that this can be a part of a process of ongoing dialogue. Naseepo Ngomizulu, George Mahashe, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
1: This was a podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue Series. Professor Brett Piper has been in discussion with Dr. Nasifo Ngomizulu and Dr. George Mahashi. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. The podcast was produced by Elna Schutz. The music in this podcast is Decompress by Lee Rosvear, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution License.